Welcome back to the Health ITB, a podcast brought to you by USF Health Online. I am your host, David Rice, and today we're going to be talking about the All of Us Research Program, an initiative driven by the National Institutes of Health that aims to collect and study data from over 1 million people living in the United States in the coming years. The program is a part of the Precision Medicine Initiative, an effort launched by President Barack Obama's administration with the long-term goal of reducing the broad strokes approach to healthcare we've always had in favor of developing individualized healthcare or personalized healthcare, meaning your care is based on your genetic makeup, while also accounting for lifestyle and environmental factors that stem from your life experience. Precision medicine is, of course, a grand idea that needs a lot of highly technical work to take place to make it a reality. All of us is exactly that, with the data that is being collected hopefully serving as the nuts and bolts of future precision medicine efforts. Getting there, however, has required a coordinated effort between researchers, healthcare providers, technology experts, academics, and participants. Dr. Robert Carroll is an assistant professor at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and one member of the research team working on all of us. I had a chance to speak with him recently about the program and about the work of collecting and curating all that data. As the program prepares to release data to researchers for the first time, Carol and his colleagues are using a common data model known as the Observational Medical Outcomes Partnership Model, or OMOP for short, to transform data into a standardized format and thus improve accessibility. My main role with all of us right now is one of the leads for data curation, and so that's this is really what I'm thinking about a lot of the time. And so All of Us has a few different sort of pillars of data collection right now. And then we're actually working towards, we'll have our first alpha release. So people from outside of the DRC, the Data Research Center, will actually be able to get into the workbench and look at the data a little bit more. So the, the pillars for that core data set right now are electronic health record data, which is coming from uploads from these health provider organizations. And so that's one pillar. The other pillar is the surveys. And so the participants are providing information themselves. We call it PPI, the participant provided information. So they log into the portal. Once they've consented, they're actually able to answer surveys talking about their health or their family history or some of their social and demographic information. So we get that information and collect that and make that available as well. And another piece of information that we, that we have right now is the physical measurements. So when people do their enrollment, they come in and they give some biospecimens so we can extract things like DNA to do genomics in the future. They also get some really kind of basic measurements done. So things like height and weight, but also blood pressures and waist and hip measurements. And so all that information is also compiled and made available. Right now, um, most of the data we have is survey data and sort of this clinical phenotypic kind of data. And so we've organized it using a common data model called OMOP. Uh, so it's been in play for a long time. It was originally, OMOP is the uh, Observational Medical Outcomes Partnership, which was a public-private partnership from some big corporations as well as government-funded grantees that really came together and tried to say, hey, we want to create a standard data model for representing this information. So it's widely used around the world now, and it's a really big, strong community that actually does a lot of cool research, does a lot of neat tools, and so we were excited to be able to leverage that data model to hopefully make the data more accessible to more people. Part of what is so exciting about all of us is its focus on populations that have typically been underrepresented in clinical trials and large-scale data collections. As genomics and precision medicine take center stage in the 2020s, 
All of Us is set to serve as a well of information for researchers to pull from in addressing specific population health issues. Well, on the genomic side, at least, one of the biggest areas, I think, is cancer genomics. And that's where we have the most real precision medicine that's very actionable. You will get your uh, cancer, your tumor sequence, you have a baseline sequence, and you're actually able to really do an excellent job in a lot of cases of targeting therapies to that specific uh, tumor that you have and can be really effective in, in some circumstances. So that's one of the best areas. There are a lot of other areas, I think pharmacogenomics broadly, and so that's the use of genomics to inform decisions about treatments with drugs and medications. Uh, pharmacogenomics has a lot of really strong, uh, it's, it's one of the best targeted areas, once again, precision, because it is a treatment type, and so we're really able to go in, and sometimes other pharmacogenomics that are out there are things about um, what anticoagulants to use. There are certain things, and this has come up in the news and it's been a really big deal, where you might have a strong risk if you have certain genetic variants to use certain anticoagulants, for instance, that just don't work. And so people who you know, might be at risk for blood clots would have um, higher rates of those, and so they weren't receiving the treatment. It looked like they were getting the treatment, they were taking their medication, but it actually wasn't having the effect that was expected. Uh, so that's a really big area. Uh, and I think one of the hopes is that by building these bigger data sets, we'll be able to expand that repertoire of precision treatment. Yeah, there's a lot of other areas when it comes to diagnostics or understanding what might be happening with people that we really hope to improve in the future. All of us uses data that is provided by volunteer participants, with much of it coming from a person's electronic health record. If you've worked with EHRs, you'll know that the industry's record of sharing EHR data is problematic. Carol noted some of the hurdles that have to be overcome in using EHR data. The good news, however, is that with all of us as a centralized repository of data, the pains of collection and refinement aren't passed on to researchers, academics, and data experts trying to gain insight from it. It's a really big challenge, I think, to, to really use the data well. So there's lots of layers to what might be different about the EHR data. So one of those layers is a different place in the country there are different people there, whether they be cultural differences or these other things are health differences. And so um, that actually has an impact on the type of patients you might see. So that, that's one area in which the data is very different. So the populations just are, are different from the outset. In addition, um, the health records themselves, right, are actually big software platforms. And there are a few major vendors out there, things like Epic and Cerner, who have a lion's share of the, mar- of the market share um, actually with those systems. And the way they store data is different. And even within Epic instances, there's a lot of differences from one institution to another. So that's one, another area that is different, that the intermediate systems. So we might have the same common data model at the end, but the way the data is actually stored and using clinical care might be different. So that's an, another layer that's different. Then, of course, the hospital's own billing practices and patterns and the, what they think is best practice to do in an area might be different. Um, so you can see some things there, or just the way that things are billed or coded might be a little bit different from place to place. And so on, that's so those are some of the main layers that make for different EHR data that can make it a, a little bit challenging to use. And I think what we're really hoping for is, of course, there are people out there right now that have been working really hard to address some of those issues and to make data for multiple health centers really usable together. But I think that's one area in which having this centralized repository will really be a big boost for the science. Uh, because we'll be able to provide to people and hopefully get some really neat new insights from researchers around the world about how to really leverage this kind of data. In some ways, all of us is not necessarily unique. 
There are other data warehouses out there that can provide de-identified data to researchers at scale to help them with hypothesis generation and to validate their questions. A good example is something like PCORnet from the National Patient-Centered Clinical Research Network, which touts itself as a sort of network of research networks. It includes nine large clinical research networks, two health plan research networks, and centralized coordinating and control offices. It shares data on behalf of patients and medical centers with researchers and academics, whereas with all of us, the sharing is left entirely in the hands of the patient and is then put into a data platform where everyone from citizen researchers to academics and pharmaceutical R&D teams can interact with it. The participants contributing this de-identified data have access to everything they share and can get information on any research project that involves the use of all of us data. This is something that caught the attention of USF Health's Director of Informatics and Analytics Programs, Dr. Athanasios Salatsanis, at a recent conference of the American Medical Informatics Association. I, I find it amazing that uh, they are letting people and patient, patients uh, contribute the data, right? In, in, more, in most repositories that we've seen so far, it's either multiple organizations that are contributing data into a repository, uh, or uh, some major study with many people who has a specific focus and gets data for these specific people. But this, in this case, the all of us, it opens, it's open to everyone. And this is amazing because suddenly you see uh, hundreds of thousands of people contributing the data uh, for research purposes, right? And uh, f it's, it, it is really uh, exciting to see that that people are taking interest in, in contributing their data for their care. Because you've seen in the past that anything has to do with technology is exciting at first, but then uh, people are getting a little bit uh, bored with it, so they stop using it. But this time it's something constant and people are actively taking care of their care and they're contributing their data. That's what I find amazing here. And the most exciting part with this program is that when you have uh, data from uh, from entire population you uh, you have data for everything everything that has to do with you don't it's completely open to everybody you don't have to focus on specific disease you don't have to sp focus on specific race or uh, uh, specific genes you have everything extreme diversity i would say for this data which is amazing because if you have a cancer data set you have patients with cancer if you have a diabetes data set, you have patients with diabetes. But in this case, you have everything. And most importantly, you also have healthy people in, some, in this, uh, in contributing the data. All of Us is perhaps one of the most important ongoing large-scale data projects out there at the moment, not only for its scale, but the different ways it could be used. In the world of healthcare data, there are resources for researchers and educators to use in their work, as I previously alluded to. But what about students? For example, at USF, professors use large data sets such as the National Surgery Quality Improvement Database, or NISCIP. They also use the Surveillance, Epidemiology, and End Results, or SEER program, the Framingham Heart Disease Database, and the Standard Transplant Analysis Research, or STAR database. These are teaching tools that provide real-world data, which can help students gain insight into specific problems and develop solutions that have real-world value. But as you can tell just by looking at their titles, 
they tend to be focused on specific problems. Carol hopes that all of us can one day do something similar, but open up the possibilities to all conditions and be of interest to a greater number of people, be it high schoolers working on a project or amateur data enthusiasts. That, I don't know, I've personally been really excited about in the past that the idea, I mean, one could really imagine a world in which you know, somebody in middle school or high school is able to do their science fair project, right, using some of this, all of this data. Um, I think that there, that there are some challenges around that um, when it comes to making sure that the data is well taken care of um, and that the, there's appropriate controls and responsibility comes into play. And for instance, you know, the, the idea of, of somebody in middle high school, I think it's a, a wonderful, amazing thing. And, and I think it's something we're going to continue to pursue and support. But, but at first, um, right, we can't have minors signing data use agreements, for instance, right? And so there's certain of those regulatory uh, areas that we'll have to, to get around. But I, I do think, um, especially for students in graduate school, especially if they're funded on NIH grants, I think there is a real opportunity for them to get in and do whether classwork or their own research, working on those degrees to actually really get into the data. And I, th I think that's something that will be available at launch in those in those situations. And once again, I think we're really, I, I know I'm personally really interested in, and I think the program is still really interested in opening some of this up to as broad of an audience as possible. As an educator who uses exactly these types of data sets in the classroom, the project has piqued Salatsani's interest. He sees the potential in using it in a variety of courses, but for an in-depth project to be done, that will require something more intensive and time-consuming than the eight-week online sessions that USF Health Online's courses abide by. Well, I, I see that I see that in, uh, as a part of an analytics course, but mostly the, the what is available now for public, which is uh, aggregate data mostly and see trends and see uh, what the disease, what data they are available, what kind of diseases they are uh, covering how you can help generate a hypothesis from these general trends that you can see in analytics and in uh, visualize this, uh, all this data. So that's what I'm thinking at the introductory level. For, uh, for the data that they are going to release, uh, which we don't know what it is yet, but when they release it for the scientific community, uh, then I can still see it as part of a, a course, but uh, something more advanced because uh, just the process of uh, getting access to this data is going to be a little bit long. So uh, I'm expecting that uh, for people who are interested in an internship or in a, in a, in a project that takes more than eight weeks, uh, then I can see that happening. But uh, for main courses, I'm, I'm thinking mostly uh, the, the, the workbench that they're having right now available to the public, that would be a good start. As he said this, my next thought turned to the recruitment of new students and workforce development in informatics and healthcare analytics. While the two fields are growing and becoming more important in healthcare, there is a well-documented skills gap for companies looking to hire data science professionals. To address it, universities have to help create interest at the undergrad level in pursuing a career in fields like informatics and analytics. For Salasanis, seeing the challenge as creating interest is the wrong way to look at it. Rather, it comes down to finding the right questions to ask at the undergraduate level that students will be able to answer using healthcare data, something all of us could be a valuable tool in doing. At the end of the day, this is a tool that provides access to a major data set, right? 
and it also gives you uh, access to for to tools to uh, analyze this data in some fashion. The most important thing here is that what kind of questions we're asking the data set. Because if we don't have any questions to ask, then uh, the, 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 the tool is useless, right? So the scientific community is asking specific questions that they want to see answers. But uh, at the undergrad level, if we ask questions that undergrad people want, want to see answered, then uh, we can create a, a spark in the analytics area for these guys. It's easy to see the value of all of us for academics, students, researchers, and medical professionals. But what about the average person? After all, the person contributing their data has the power to see all of their own data and how it's being used. So my next question is, could this be something the general public or healthcare providers could dig into to not only make discoveries, but increase the average person's health data literacy? Well, I, I see that as a, as a first step, that it's something that you can use it to have people uh, see what data is available and what kind of questions they can ask. But the, 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 the point here is how to attract people into looking into that in a repeated, in a repeated fashion too. Uh, I don't see easily the general public to be interested in uh, going back constantly, repeatedly, to understand what this database is about or what this software is about or this tool is about. But uh, I, can, I can see it as a, as a method for educating people who are in the, in the field. Or, but that, the good thing is that it's too many fields involved here, so I can see it as a, as a tool that is being used in, in most undergraduate and graduate programs that have to do something with uh, data analysis and information technology, perhaps, and information science. It's one thing to collect all this data from participants and make it available to researchers and even the public. But a program like All of Us isn't just an exercise. It has lofty goals to spur innovation and create tangible results in both the short and long term. When I say short term, you may be wondering how soon you can expect to see something of note come out of All of Us. That's a, that's a great question. So the, I think there are two aspects of that. Um, one of the key ones is I hope that you know, perhaps early 2020, we'll be able to make the research data set more available to the research community to actually start really doing analyses. And I think that there actually are interesting discoveries that can happen even in that time span, even very quickly with only, I say only, but this the phenotypic data that we have and the survey data that we have. So data from health records and from those survey responses that the participants are filling out. I think we really will do have the opportunity to find some neat things in that time frame. Additionally, this um, in 2020, we expect to have the beginnings of genotype data and hopefully even genotype data available to researchers. So those, those timelines aren't firm yet, but it would be, that I think is a whole nother way, but I think we'll really see a lot of uh, neat things there. So in, in the data set right now, we have over 100,000 individuals with EHR data, around 200,000 people with surveys, and that's a lot of information. But within 2020, I hope that there will be something that really that can move the needle. So what's it going to take? Well, in truth, the answer is there is still a long way to go and a lot of data to sort through. And that was something I was curious about. When we're talking about collecting data from hundreds of thousands of people and perhaps eventually millions, is there ever a point where there's almost too much data? 
or to use one of my favorite idioms, do we risk reaching a point where we can't see the forest for the trees? Honestly, I think sometimes even one patient's records or one set of survey responses can be challenging to try and infer what's really going on. Um, having said that, even one genome too, right? All these data types are very intense, very deep, and there's a whole lot of neat work that can be done. Having said that, at the broad scale, I think there are two kind of answers. There's the raw computational power, right? Do you have big enough computers? Do you have enough memory? Are they fast enough to be able to do the analysis? And I think that's one area where the cloud is really neat because it means that anybody can really come in and say, hey, all I have is my laptop here, but I really need to use a few hundred cores for a couple hours. And you can do that. You can sort of rent, if you will, you can rent that. Uh, processing power and it won't be too expensive where you could never even if you have your laptop and it has two cores you might take you weeks or months to try and do the same analysis and it just doesn't scale the same way so some really neat opportunities in the cloud to actually help manage those problems with infrastructure from the scientific standpoint and learning about it i i think it can be but it can, it can be a challenge but i think it's sort of i don't know you could say like climbing a mountain you know if the point is to get to the top of the mountain it's, that's great. You know, the, the bigger the mountain, the more data you have, it might be really hard and challenging, but the further you can see and the more you can learn from it. So, and I, I hope too that along the way, using that mountain metaphor, right, as you look out, you don't have to get all the way to the top. You don't have to perfectly, totally understand everything to still be able to see a lot and to make new insights and discoveries. So I'm excited for those opportunities. So I think certainly it can be very easy to get overwhelmed. There can be so many things to look at that you have no idea where to start. But I think when you have the technical capacity and you put that together with some scientific interest and maybe some clinical expertise or some social sciences expertise, you could really find new things, even though it seems like there's too much data. Given the size of the project, the resources at all of us' disposal, and the talented team working on it, Salatsanis has high expectations for what will come out of the first release. These guys have... uh cleaned and curated the data already. So I'm expecting to be a perfect data set that has <laughs> nothing to worry about. <laughs> it has no missing values. It has no values out of uh, range. It's perfectly curated for research. So we don't have to spend a lot of time in cleaning the data set and curating the data set or securing the data set because you never know where, where you're going to store it and uh, allow access to. So I'm thinking this in, in, with this respect, it's much better than any other data sets that are available uh, for research purposes. Some of the challenges in getting there come down to data standards. The industry has been working on data standards in EHRs to create a universal language to communicate health information. One of the most common you might hear about is HL7's Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources, FHIR or FIRE for short, Using this allows data to be organized in a way that disparate systems can read the data during transfer. Using the U.S. Core Data for Interoperability, or USCDI, industry leaders at the Office of the National Coordinator are helping to establish priorities for which information needs to be shared. But some of the issues persist, and may always persist, as long as health systems differ from one state or region to another. But Carol sees the potential for all of us to help. A lot of it has to do with the idea of standards, and they don't necessarily fix everything because there's a lot of things that can still be done by convention that are different. And as I mentioned with health record data, there's just so much that can be different about local policies and all this that will always be 
of interest and always require some heavy lifting. But I, I have a hope that we'll continue to standardize the way the data is captured and represented and that we'll continue to build, I say hierarchies, but this, this connection between the vocabularies and ontologies that we're using, that we'll get away from just throwing free text into a box and calling it good, that will allow people the flexibility to say exactly what they want, but also help them to really structure that. So if you know, I say have pain in the left leg, you, you can also look at your data and say what, what that looks like. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that we find even I say bridging the gap, right, between maybe what these clinical researchers want on, on the data collection side, thinking about all of us, right, they might be looking for myocardial infarctions. And on the participant side, where they're entering this information, and it's much easier for them to understand when you write heart attack. And so being able to bridge those is, is one area where I think the standards really matter and are important. I think thinking more broadly into spaces, you can use things like Fitbit, for example, and these wearables are our new one where I think there's still a lot of work going into it to understand what's the most important parts of this, this, this data type. How can we really leverage this to understand health better? Um, and from that, then how can we integrate that with these other data sources? And that's one of the cool things I think all of us will do and we'll work with the research community and the community at large to really try to understand how it makes sense to link these things and leverage these different data types together. But I think I think that's a big part of it. So specifically in the EHR space as well, there's been a really strong push to encourage electronic health records, to encourage interoperability. And the Office of National Coordinator is doing some really interesting work um, to help push that even further using things like HL7's FIRE. And so there's been a lot of talk, especially this summer, um, now into the end of the year, about how might we use FIRE to really drive this kind of innovation in the research space and to really help connect some of the data sets that have typically been isolated in the past. You might be asking yourself the same question I found myself asking at this point. Am I actually going to contribute my personal data to the repository? This isn't my cell phone usage or online shopping habits. It's my health data. The question of should I and why was something that I posed to Carol, and he had this to say. It's really about trying to contribute to something bigger. I think it's, it's really about the vision. It's about, can my data make a difference? Can it actually uh, drive some of this health discovery? And that's really the goal of the program at, at large, is to accelerate <laughs> discoveries in biomedical research that can really help improve human health. But I think for a lot of people, uh, we all know somebody, especially family, who you know has been sick or has had problems or struggles with these things. and the hope that you know every little piece of data matters, but frankly, it's it's a lot of data. Even one person's data is really valuable and really rich and important. And everyone has their own health history, and all of that really can contribute. And so I, I think that's it. It's about that idea of contributing something that can hope that hopefully can make a difference. I think specifically though, when you start to look at the idea of contributing to a research or excuse me to a resource that's designed to support health research that really, once again, might be able to make a difference in many people's lives, people get really excited to contribute. Uh, and I've got a colleague, for instance, over at the Gabrielle Miller Kids First program at, at their data center, where they find that the families of these, uh, they have children with cancer, and that it's a really very sad thing, and it's hard on everyone, but one of the things that they can take some solace in is actually helping make sure that their, the data from their children and from their that, this hard experiences actually gets incorporated and actually has some value. So they want to contribute that data back to say, well, hey, you know, I might have this big loss weighing on my heart, 
but there's there's some hope maybe for the next family, maybe in a few years, that because we're contributing this data, it actually might help, and that 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 kid five years from now actually might survive where my kid couldn't. Um, and I think that kind of stuff can be really powerful. Families, yeah, families with genetic conditions, like that's the thing. You know that I have a hard time with this, and I know my kids are going to have a time with this. So like, what can I do to help? And so I think that that idea of wanting to contribute data for a purpose actually helps like alleviate some of the concerns people might have and really attract a group of people who want to help make that difference even in what seems like maybe a kind of a small way of contributing one's data. If you want to learn more about all of us and get involved as a researcher, it's easy enough. But don't take it from me. I'll let Carol explain it. The data will be accessed through the All of Us Researcher Workbench. Um, and so you can actually go to researchallofus.org right now and get a preview about what will be available in the future and sign up to force to get updates and those kinds of things. So hopefully we'll be providing tools to help with that. I think there's a lot of aspects, once again, to that. What, what do you want to learn about information? How do you visualize it? One of the really cool tools that we're providing is Jupyter Notebooks. So using both R and Python, investigate the data. and really make their own, your own visualizations and that. I, I think using the data early on, I think as we build these tools and work with the community to really understand what the visualizations they'll find most helpful, well, well, may require a pretty you know, intense desire to get in and go deep and to work with some of these, these technical uh, tools. But we also have other tools that we made available as well to help more people get accessible. We've got a really neat cohort builder that allows you to go through and with a point and click kind of interface actually find some cohorts and look at some graphs and understand a little bit more about the population. And so I think these tools will continue to evolve and some of it though, it really does boil down to this is hard work, right? There's a big research community out there who's been spending a lot of time doing their best to learn more and understand and really use this data to drive health discovery. I, I look forward to that time when everyone can really get in and start showing off uh, what they can do and how to really make discoveries and also to make that more available and accessible to a wide research audience. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Health IT Beat. We're excited about things to come in 2020 as we prepare for the annual HIMSS Global Conference and Expo, set to take place in Orlando from March 9th to the 13th. We'll be at the conference on University Row and Kiosk UR20, as well as doing another lightning session. This year's discussion will be led by Dr. Christina Eldridge and cover the foundations of health informatics competencies and how USF Health goes about developing a competency-driven curriculum. For more information about what USF Health Online is doing at HIMSS 20, visit usfhealthonline.com and click the Resources tab or search for us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We'll be providing updates all the way until the show. I hope you'll join us next time as we sit down with USF Health graduate Caroline Saavedra for a discussion about project management in health IT.